0: Uh, James chapter 5, we're in a series going through the book of James, and we have a couple weeks left. And so uh, I drew the straw for James chapter 5. If you're familiar with James chapter 5, this is not the most delightful passage you could pick, all right? So I was thinking maybe I'd get uh, the passage on just being patient in your suffering, and we can go there together. No, I got the straw. Uh, Pastor Curtis gave me the straw that really hones in on... You and I and how much we care about our stuff. I mean, that's kind of my, that's kind of my paraphrase of it. All right, so James chapter 5. Uh, it's been a couple weeks. We took two weeks off of this series because of Palm Sunday and because of Easter. So I want to just give us a refresh on who James is, who James uh, was, I should say, and then uh, who he's writing to in James. And so a couple things I want to just remind you of. You've heard these in this series already, but I'm going to say it again. James, of course, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so uh, we, we find out in John chapter 7, James actually is a little doubtful about who Jesus actually is. So uh, Jesus is proclaiming to be the son of God. James, his earthly brother, has got his doubts. He's like, I'm not positive, all right? Uh, Mark chapter 3, if you, if you were to turn there, you would uh, see that as Jesus is uh, starting his ministry, his family actually goes after him to say, hey, we think you're nuts, basically. James, right there with his family, hey, you need to come home. I don't know if, you have, if you've had a crazy brother or sister, but hey, you need to come home. You've gone mad, all right? So James is a part of that. Uh, what happens between that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, a lot of things happen, right? Jesus is... Uh, is killed on a cross. He is dead and buried, and then Jesus is raised from the dead. And so 1 Corinthians 15, we find out that Jesus shows up to his half-brother. So his half-brother, who thought he was a little crazy, who had doubts about him, all of a sudden Jesus is in the room and is, uh, you know, uh, saying hello to his brother. As you can imagine, at that point, his half-brother begins to believe, all right? So we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. James, and this is important, James from that point becomes a pastor. I mean, he was not a professional pastor. He was the brother of Jesus, but that didn't mean that this was his profession. He really was not a follower of Jesus until later in his life. And so James uh, agrees to become the pastor of the, the church in Jerusalem. They call it the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the epicenter of Christianity. The Christian church was new. There wasn't a whole lot of Christian churches, but Jerusalem was kind of home base, James headed up that church. James is writing, and again, this is also important, especially for today. So James is writing to believers who had been persecuted. And you'll see why this is important in our passage, but just remember that these are not people who had uh, attained great wealth. These are people that had really sacrificed a lot to declare the name of Jesus as king. They had given up their, their, uh, their reputation, they had given up many of them, their uh, their, their finances, their, they've given their money, they've given up their homes, and they are following Jesus uh, and proclaiming the name of Jesus in the church in Jerusalem. And what had happened is, if you were to proclaim those things in that day, you came against some persecution. And so these Christians were then scattered, right? So they were in Jerusalem, and then they were scattered out, basically formed house churches, right? So if you had 15 or 20 folks that found refuge, found shelter in a small town, they would get together and form a new small, you know, basically a house church. And so they didn't have necessarily pastors of that house church. James was their pastor. And so James begins to write this letter. Five chapters is how we broke it out, but one long letter to these guys. And then James would send messengers and uh, these letters would arrive and they would be encouraged and they would be rebuked and they would be uh, inspired and they would uh, hear from James the teachings of Jesus uh, through a letter. Okay? So here's what I'd like you to do. If you have a Bible... James chapter 5, it's the first six verses. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen, but typically when I uh, get to teach, I love it if you would just read this on your own, and I'd like you just to read it out loud, not all together, but just at your pace, uh, maybe with somebody next to you if you want to peer over the shoulder of somebody, but would you read James chapter 5, 1 through 6? You can read it from the screen, and then we'll come back together and begin to uh, dive into this passage, okay? Let's read so let's come back together and dive into this. So uh, one of the things, if you got a pen or you're into taking notes or maybe you just want to write on the side of your Bible, here's what I feel like is the umbrella, the the macro uh, uh, theme of this passage, and it's it's this, and I want to show you where this theme shows up in Scripture, but it's it's this right here. God cares more about people than he does about stuff. And if stuff sounds too informal for you, uh, possessions, all right? God cares more about people than he does our possessions or our, our things. And so we see this in Scripture. I think this is important to know because these thoughts are not original to James. James is writing this to these uh, small, scattered Christians, but he didn't just think of these or feel inspired to write this. He would have, as a follower of Jesus, known the teachings of Jesus. He also would have, you know, read the Old Testament. And he would have seen these themes begin to pop up over and over and over. So let me just give you some quick examples. Uh, in the first five books of the Bible, we see the journey of a people that are called out and rescued out of slavery into the promised land. God has a promise for them. He's made a covenant with them, and he begins to take them from slavery out of bondage into freedom and into the promised land. In those five books are, are many reminders uh, to his people of the dangers of just hoarding and obtaining wealth and so what are some examples so Deuteronomy 8 you don't have to turn there but basically what God says to them is it's it's I the Lord who gives you strength in order for you to earn anything and I think that's a good reminder for me this morning I don't do this on my own strength God gives me the strength God gives you the strength he gives us air to breathe he gives us uh, relative health in order for us to actually go make a paycheck all right, that's a blessing from God. He's reminding in Deuteronomy chapter 8, hey, I give you the strength to do so. Leviticus 19, this is a fascinating passage in scripture. Uh, Pastor Curtis has taught on this, and I love it. Basically, what God uh, lays out for them is He says, as you have a field and you begin to reap your harvest, do this for me leave the edges, leave the edges. And why does he do that? He says, I want you to leave the edges so that as you encounter people who are in great need, I want you to help meet their need, right? You take this, and that is for your family and for the good of your family and your people, but would you just leave what amounts to basically 10% of your crops, and I want you to recognize people who are in great need, and I want you to meet their need, right? So this idea of us being a generous people, of us giving faithfully, it didn't just pop up in the New Testament. James just didn't pop up and start talking about uh, the dangers of wealth and how we live generously. This was part of the story of the people of God. If you move on into scripture and you get into what uh, many refer to as just the, the, the wisdom, the books of wisdom, right? That would include Proverbs and you see proverb after proverb begin to remind us, give, really give great counsel to you and I about how to use our money for the good of God and then also the dangers of what can happen if we hoard and we care more about money than people, we see this in the theme of scripture. God cares more about people than he does our stuff. All right, just a couple, uh, two more quick ones, and then we'll move on. Zechariah seven, not a book that we uh, pop open very often in here, but it's a fascinating book. And basically, uh, the prophet uh, Zechariah, he is told by God, "I want you to warn my people about the dangers of just gathering wealth and using it all for you." Everything I have is for me. I earned it. It's mine, and uh, you know, you fend for yourself. And Zechariah the prophet gives this warning, and you see in Zechariah a very clear denial of that warning, and you see the dangers, uh, the consequence that followers of the Lord, uh, when they denied him and denied his his uh, his. A warning there, what happens, all right? So you see this all through the Old Testament. And then, of course, I won't go into this, but Jesus mentions, and I read this this week, I I think I had heard this before, but I just was reminded that Jesus talks about money more than he talks about love, right? And so when you go, well, why does he do that? I think just for us, he sees it as, one, a massive uh, benefit and asset for us to serve. He also sees it as a, a grave danger, and it can be to the detriment of our faith and belief in him. So Jesus, there's, there's a ton there in the Gospels where Jesus is teaching on money. So that gives you some context. Here's what I'd love for you to write down, though. In this passage, James chapter 5, the first six verses, I sense there's two things happening here. One, it's an encouragement, which I know seems strange because you read it just like I read it. This is not the most encouraging passage of scripture you could ever Read, But when you go back to what we discussed earlier, this was not written to a bunch of rich people. A bunch of wealthy uh, elite were not receiving this letter and reading James' words and going, wow, like uh, we've, we've missed the boat here. We confess our sin. No, the, the, the poor and the persecuted, that's who was receiving this letter. And so you've got to imagine what an encouragement it was for them to read, hey, there will be consequences for those who have persecuted you. I'm just going to be honest. I think just all of us would go, yeah, that would, that would tend to, to be comforting to me, that we would get a letter that just says, hey, those who've held back wages from you, who've starved your family, there will be a day of judgment for all of us, and it includes them, all right? So this passage is an encouragement, although it doesn't feel that encouraging, right? Uh, the second thing is it's not only an encouragement, it's a warning. I think that's pretty clear to us. And so James Not knowing that thousands of years later we would gather several hundred in a room to read this passage, uh, he still was warning these young believers because they didn't know their future. Many of them would end up dying because of their faith. We know that's true for James. I've talked about that before, that uh, he was actually pushed off the ledge of the temple and murdered. So not a great way to go. James was murdered. Many of these young believers would have been killed. But a lot of them could have had prosperous uh, futures. They could have had futures that included uh, wealth and prestige. And so James is clearly sending them a warning. Hey, none of us are above this. You may think so right now because you don't have a lot, but there may be a day that you have a lot and you need to be warned. It was an encouragement uh, and it was a warning. And so let's dive in verse one. And this one is very straightforward. I don't have to spend a lot of time here. We're all smart people, but it just says, come now, you rich all right, So I don't know about you, but when I read that this week over and over again, I, just, I, loved, I loved the chance to just excuse myself from that because I'm like, I ain't rich, all right? Uh, I got a little bit of money. I don't have a lot of money. And so James is clearly talking to somebody else here. I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to think about lunch. As soon as this guy's over, we'll pray and sing, and we're out of here, right? That was kind of my mind frame. I know you've seen some of these statistics. Maybe you haven't, but I started just to research uh, global wealth. Who are the rich in the world, right? Have you seen these stats? It's mind-boggling because here I am in front of you, Cypress, Texas, 2016. I don't feel that rich, right? But if I was just to make $25,000 a year, right? So just go with me for a second. Just any of us, one individual, I know uh, most of us are right there. If you're younger, maybe you're close to that, but anywhere in that twenty-five dollars range, just as one individual, you are in the top five percent richest people on the globe out of billions of people line them all up you would step forward and say I'm in the top five percent I'm rich I don't know about you when I read that I went okay I'm back in this I'm back in this game (laughs) all right most of us are right there so Jane we're not able to just exclude ourselves from this passage verse one don't check out with me after three words come now you rich four words come now you rich and then he just, he, he puts it pretty bluntly here. I don't have to spend a lot of time here. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. All right? So this is not a rosy passage, all right? This is not a passage about uh, love and grace and kittens and rainbows, all right? This is a pretty tough passage. And so verse two, here's where we'll camp out quite a bit. Verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. All right, so not a great picture here. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Several things in here, verse two and verse three that I want us to consider. The key word, I don't know what your translation says, but the key word for me is you have hoarded. Several translations say the word hoard, right? This is not a sermon about what you own. To be honest, I don't really care what you own, right? I don't care what kind of car you drive. I don't care if you have a wave runner, but I would like you to call me and invite me to the lake, all right? I don't care about what you own. This is not about what you own, but rather what might own me, right? So what do I, what do I have that I have paid my hard-earned money for that actually has ownership over me? What James is saying, and that's why I think the key word is hoarded, is because, as you know, to hoard means this massive pileup, this massive collection, right? I remember when the Iraq war was going on, I saw an image that I never forgot, and it was, you know, Saddam Hussein had all these palaces all over the place, uh, upwards of 100 palaces throughout the country. And this poor, oppressed country, made rich through oil, uh, he had basically hoarded that, for his own gang. So he built all these palaces. And of course, you remember when we uh, bombed Iraq, when the U.S. went to war and others went to war with Iraq, we bombed a lot of his, uh, his houses and a lot of his uh, safe houses and a lot of his military bunkers, all these kind of things. And they had all these images of folks going through these palaces. Anybody remember this? And I remember one image was of one of his palaces. And you'll see it behind me. The, the guy literally is sitting down at the piano I mean, this thing, probably a you know, $100,000 piano that has collapsed in the midst of rubble, uh, you know, gold, uh, gold-plated stairs and all this just crazy extravagance. And here it is in the midst of rubble, uh, this man trying attempt to attempt to, to salvage what was left of, of these things. And if that doesn't make sense to you, so maybe you're like, look, I don't have 100 palaces, right? I got a house in Cyprus. I don't know where you're going with this, but that's not me. Then maybe you have seen the show Hoarders. Anybody else seen this thing? Uh, Liz does not allow me to wa- watch the show. It's, it's incredibly gross. By the way, they always have cats on Hoarders. I'm just saying. <laughs> I have two cats, so I can say that out loud, but you cat people, y'all crazy. All right. So uh, Hoarders, you've seen the show. It's just this massive pileup of stuff. So if this doesn't make sense to you, maybe this is us. All right. Maybe this is us. And I realize your living room doesn't look like that. But what James is saying to us is, have you slowly over time began to hoard these things? Many of them are nice things, right? And have I began to just stockpile stuff in my life? And I don't know if you caught this, but in verse three, verse three, and maybe you want to underline this, it says these things are actually going to be piled up and then used as evidence against you in the last days, I got to be honest when I first read that, I just thought like what what's, what is James saying right here like I'm not quite seeing, so we on trial here, and of course, the last days we're in the last days like i'm not a I'm not a uh an end time scholar, but we know that jesus uh death and resurrection, what is next uh and we know that his ascension has happened, so what is next it, it's it's return, so we're in the last days. I don't know if it's uh, hundreds of days or if it's you know hundreds of years, I don't know, but we're in this period. What James is saying to us is there will come a last day and you will stand before God and the evidence of what you did with your life is going to be piled up this hoarding and this collecting of junk that's sitting behind you, right? Does that give you an image of what James is trying to say? And so how have I spent my life, my time, energy, resources so that when I stand before God, do I have a mountain of stuff or, as we stated earlier, have I done my absolute best to, to live out a life that says God cares more about people than he does about stuff? That's what James is saying right there. I want to just pause here because I, I, I had this thought this week. So, is, is this passage like anti savings? Like, are we not to ever save and plan? Like, absolutely not. I think it's clear to most of us, but I just want to say it out loud. Uh, there are plenty of places, especially in the Proverbs, where God uh, gives great counsel uh, through, through uh, the Proverbs of how to save and how to utilize our money for good. So, you know, if you've got a great 401k, that's fantastic. If you've got money saved for your kid's college, I'm beginning to try to figure out, I got five kids, so I got to get, you know, y'all got to start paying me more around here, all right? I got to start saving more money. These are great things when you save for college. When you have a, it's, we're not going there with this passage. I think it's clear to most of us that that's not what James is saying. What James clearly is saying is there a mountain of stuff over your shoulder that when you stand before God, instead of that mountain of stuff, I, I think most of us would say I'd much rather be a line of people just say, "Hey," very humbly, that man or that woman in the workplace, as a neighbor as a friend, influenced me and led me to, to the Lord and they used their time, energy, and resources. They weren't perfect. They didn't always get that right. I stand before you definitely declaring that. But instead of a mountain of junk was the evidence for them, actually people whose who lives were impacted by the way you used your time, energy, and resource. That's where we're going with this passage. So hopefully, if you've been in the scriptures at all, uh, this sounds familiar to you. And so uh, without turning there, it's going to be on the screen. But I want us just to, to make note that, again, James is not speaking these things as original thoughts. He knew the teachings of Jesus. And he would have heard Jesus give the sermons uh, that he would teach on these topics. And so Matthew 6, again, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot that down, Matthew 6, 19 through, 19 through 21. James is almost word for word here. And so if you recognize a lot of this language, it's from this passage, from the teachings of Jesus. And I thought, just to make sure we're all awake here, I want us to read this out loud. It's three verses, but this ought to be a very, very close parallel uh, to what James is saying. Let's put that up there on the screen. Let's read this out loud together from Matthew 6. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I know most of you, many of you, you've heard this passage, but your treasure points to your heart. Your treasure, my, my treasure, the things that I've collected, is, is a straight arrow to the things that I care about, right? Right? The Message Bible, verse 21, puts it like this. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is is the place you will most want to be. And it's the place you will end up being, right? So where you invest, where I invest my time, energy, and resource, that's a direct arrow to the things that are a priority in my life. And so for the last maybe 20 years uh, or so, uh, Carol Duffy, unbelievable accountant. She's the, she's the best, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, she's done uh, my taxes, uh, both for uh, my personal taxes, and then we've had a small business that, that you know we've we've uh, uh, led worship and traveled, and, and so she does my uh, business and my personal. And she's amazing. She's awesome at it. Here's the deal: uh, Carol and I know each other pretty well, right? Because Carol knows my priorities. And I'll just tell you, there's some years that I look back and go, man, we kind of missed it. I led my family into some places where we spent money on stuff that just wasn't that important. And it's reflected in my taxes. So I would just argue, like, you know, outside maybe your spouse or if you're single, really outside maybe your best friend. Your accountant knows you better than just about anybody else, right? I mean, your accountant knows your heart. That arrow that Jesus is talking about, hey, that where your treasure is, that arrow's pointing right there. Carol knows where my arrow is pointed. You with me? And so this is not a sermon for us to like somehow be in judgment of one another. I think what's really great here is that James gives us an opportunity for us just to ask God, hey, would you, through the Holy Spirit, would you convict me and stir me and change me? And outside of my accountant, nobody knows you better than me. Nobody knows where my arrow is, is, is truly pointed. And so I don't want to know. I don't need to know all your details. You don't need to know all mine. But Holy Spirit, convict us in a way that our arrow, if it's off, God, would you just show us? How might we come back on track to live a generous life rather than a hoarding life? You guys with me on this? And that's what we see in Jesus' teaching. Uh, and that's what we see, James' reminder, is that where our treasure is, where our wallet is, where our tax filing is, that's the arrow's pointed there, okay? Amy Carmichael had a great quote that I loved. and I wanted just to share it with you quickly. Just a very simple quote that says this. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And so in my life, the things that I truly love are the things that I'm going to give to. Now, maybe I can fool myself for a while and on a daily basis. I feel pretty good about myself. But for the most part, the things that I love and care about, that's what I'm going to give to. Not only I'm not just talking about money here. I'm just talking about all of me, all my time, my focus, my energy, my resources, all of it really are going to go to the things I love. Hopefully they go to some things that are important. But a lot of times I have to just say, God, my arrows off here. The things that I love are the things I'm going to give to. Would you refocus me? Verse 5 and verse 6, let's move on. Verse 5 says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I know this sounds extreme. You're like, I'm not going to murder anybody, all right? This is a little bit, uh, he's kind of off the rails at this point, accusing us that we're murderers. And I think that's true for most of us. (laughs) Maybe a few of us, you go, we might could get there, right? (laughs) I mean, some of us will stake our claim, I hope that's not true. I hope you don't end up on some, uh, you know, Dateline special, okay? <laughs> but money, maybe it doesn't drive us to murder, but it sure drives us to anger, right, and jealousy, and it'll, it'll drive us to some pretty intense uh, bickering. I mean, money really has us doing some things that we might not otherwise do. So I don't know if James is too far off here. I listen to, uh, well, here's what I want to say. When I read this passage, I-, I sense that James is wanting to say to us, uh, th- through his words here, that we use luxuries and we use possessions for a false sense of security. Anybody relate to that? So I just find this false sense of security in the things that I have. And so when my bank account has some, some money in there, I just seem to breathe a little easier. And some of that's natural, right? You don't, need to go, you don't need to go broke in order to be faithful to God. You need to have some, some money saved up. But I start putting my hope and trust in it, right? It's what we were saying earlier. Uh, uh, being a good steward is not the same thing as putting all my hope and trust, and I sense that James is saying, "Hey, you've got a false sense of security. So you've you've lived off the land. I mean, you have you've 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 lived uh, like a king to the detriment of people, and you found security that's false and fleeting. And in fact, the anxiety that you thought was going to go away has actually come with the things. All right, you, you you hear what I'm saying right there? And I just, man, I felt this within me this week as I was studying this passage, like the anxiety that I think some things are going to uh, uh, wipe away whenever I purchase them or take hold of them, actually more anxiety begins to build up. You don't believe me? So just think about this. I listened to a podcast this week of uh, of, of, of these guys talking about their first car, all right? Uh, my friend Tyndall's in here. I know it wasn't his first car. He's driven some bad cars along with me. I don't, know what kind of, I don't know what kind of car you drove as your first car, but mine was not a nice car, all right? Anybody just amen into that like you had a clunker? All right? So here's the deal. This car was so bad. In fact, it was called a Chevy Citation. Have you ever even heard of that? <laughs> no, you haven't heard of that. That's how bad it is. If you haven't heard of it, Chevy was like, no, we, ain't, we should not make these anymore. Just just cut it off. So I had this Chevy Citation that we bought for 1200 bucks, right? And uh, so I had this car. Of course, I'm like 15, about to turn 16, and I could care less at the time. I'm like, I have a car. We didn't have much money in my family, so I'm just glad that I actually have some wheels. But then I met this young woman named Elizabeth, and she became my wife years later. But I had these feelings for her, and I did not want her to know that I drove that two-tone brown Chevy Citation. By the way, it looks like this. There's a, I have a photo of this thing. That's sweet right there. That's a sweet ride. So after I met Liz, here's what happened. I did not want her to know that that was my car. My my dad, and this shows you how bad this was in our house, my dad drove a car called a Ford Tempo. Anybody heard of a Ford Tempo? (laughs) These things were almost as ghetto as this, all right? But I was so disgraced by this thing that I actually told her that, hey, this Ford Tempo's mine, like it was some kind of sweet ride, you know? (laughs) But here's what happened. I drove this thing for two years, and here's what happened. When you have a car like this, you don't worry about somebody scratching it, all right? (laughs) Like somebody could just key the mess out of it, and you would just be like, hey, that happens, you know? (laughs) God God bless him. This is no lie. My senior year in high school, we had this big hailstorm. And I remember my buddy who had like this really great truck that I was kind of envious of until the hailstorm came. And it beat up both of our cars. And this brother was totally distraught. And I was like, man, I could care less. It just <laughs> beat the mess out of my hood, right? Because when you have things that you don't place a ton of value on, you don't have a bunch of anxiety. Can you relate to that? And what happened was I got newer cars, right? In fact, I thought about this this week. I pulled up to get a, a burrito because that's how I eat all the time. Just, I love Mexican food, so I went, to, I went to get my burrito. And I pulled up and my, you know, little uh, Toyota, it's not a fancy car, and you could scratch it, and I wouldn't really care, but I pull up next to this, this car. I don't recognize what kind of car this is. You know when you don't recognize, because, and I know cars, like, I don't know what kind of car that is, but it's amazing. So, you know, it's like, it's, they only make it in Italy, and they only make, like, 12 of them or something, and, and this lady is in the car, and honestly, uh, I usually don't take a, you know pay much attention to cars, but this was a really, really sweet car. I'm like, what kind of car is that? There's no like, logo. I'm like, what in the world? So I pull up right next to her. And I'm on the phone, and I'm finishing a phone call before I get out. And I look over at her, and she's on the phone. And she senses that I pulled up next to her, and I promise you, that woman in this unbelievable car, and she's probably an awesome lady. I mean, she's probably a fantastic person. She looks at me with this look like, you better not dent my brand new car, right? Now, I'm not even getting out on her side. Like, I'm on the other side. There's nobody with me. It's not even possible for me to, like, touch her car. But she has this look of, like, no kid." And I, I thought, I don't know for sure, unless she just recognized me or something, and I did something to her. I don't, I don't know if she knew me, but she didn't. I don't think she did. And she looks at me as if Don't scratch my brand new car, right? Because with these possessions comes a certain amount of anxiety. And so I don't drive a car like that, but I have a house that I care about, you know? I have a house that we have purchased with money that we earned, and I care about the house. And, you know, if you were to go, uh, you know, do donuts on my lawn, I would care about that. There's just a certain amount of anxiety when we have things that we place value on. They don't necessarily erase anxiety. A lot of times we see anxiety increase. And I think that's where James... Is reminding us this morning. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. And if you don't know Bonhoeffer, he was uh, in Nazi Germany. He was a believer. Uh, he was uh, really an evangelist, I guess, and uh, also just an unbelievable uh, man of God. And he and several others tried to overthrow Hitler. They were not successful. And, uh, and he was murdered. But this, this quote really struck me this week from a man who I res- respect, and, and he said this. Um, Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of anxiety. Here's what I would love for you to consider this morning as we read what I think is a, a pretty difficult passage of Scripture. It wasn't easy for me to dive into this week. Honestly, it wasn't easy for me personally, because I'm like, I don't really want to think through this stuff. My bills are paid, and I'm happy, and I don't really want to go here, to be honest. Here's what I would love for you to consider, and what I would just say is uh, hopefully a practical takeaway from this message and in this passage in James. And there's a few questions that if you're writing some of these down, I'd love for you just to jot them down and to pray over these. Uh, And if you're not writing uh, these down, I'd love for you just to, even right now, just say, God, let me ask these questions of you. Between me and you, let me ask these questions. First one is this. Do I find identity in my stuff? Do I find my identity in the things that I own? And God, is there anything that I own that truly owns me? and inhibits me from being a man of God who wants to live generously. And so I'd ask you to consider it. Do I find identity in anything other than the grace of Jesus? Second thing is this, very simply. Is there any place that I sense God calling me to? So this conviction of the Holy Spirit and again, I surely don't know what it is. And you probably won't know what it is in my life, but I want us together just to ask God, is there anything that I sense from the Lord that I could lean into with my time, my, all of my energy, and the, the resources, both grand or minuscule, that God might be calling me to? And so you'll meet people in our church that are active in orphan care. They're unbelievable people. And maybe you're not gonna open your home uh, or can't at this point uh, to, to be a foster home or a doctor, but you sure can come alongside that family. You just sense God going, I, I want you to lean in. I want you to, to, to pray. I want you to come around them, and I want you to be able to recognize a need in their life and, and have, uh, have the resources to meet it. You'll, you'll find people in our church that care deeply about clean water, and they want to be a part of digging wells in places that people are dying because they don't have clean water to drink. Maybe you just go, man, I want to be a part of work like that. I've sensed that more than just thinking that's a good idea, I've kind of sensed God saying, hey, you need to lean into that with your time, energy, and resource. And maybe uh, one of our partners who are active in uh, fighting human trafficking, a lot of which happens right here in our great city, that you just go, I've sensed that maybe I'm supposed to be a part of that. I'm supposed to volunteer my time. I'm supposed to pray fervently, and I'm supposed to give. I want to know the need, and I want to be able to to meet the need. I don't know what it is for you. I'm just asking, would you consider praying that prayer to God? What is it, Lord? And how I, how might I lean into that? Here's the part B of that question. Do I currently have the bandwidth to live generously? Right? And that was a question that really stirred in me this week. And by bandwidth, I mean pretty simply um, do I have time left in my day to focus on something other than me and do I have resources left in my monthly budget to Liz and I when we sit down and look at our budget is there, are there resources left that we get to just live generously that as we see a need uh, and, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you there's times where I've seen a need and not lived the way that I needed to be living and just go man somebody else can to have to meet that need because I, I really we're kind of maxed out there may be seasons where that's true. I'm just asking you, between you and the Lord, God, would you just show me, do I have the bandwidth both in time and in my monthly budget so that when I encounter a neighbor, when I encounter someone who maybe doesn't have a meal in our church as we're active together, that if I sense that you're telling me to lean in and love somebody, I actually have the bandwidth to do so, right? And I think we see that in this passage. It's not about what you own. It's about owning a bunch of stuff that might inhibit you from caring more about stuff than about people, right? You guys follow me there? So the question is that do I have the time and energy to live generously and the resource to live as a generous person? The last thing I would say uh, is this. And uh, I wanted us to give an offering together as a church early because I did. I, you know, I didn't want you to ever, ever think that this had anything to do with me asking for your money. I don't want your money. I don't, I, I've never been in a conversation, you just need to know this, I've never been in a conversation with my pastor, or with our team about what you give as an individual. That is not information that I will ever have or Pastor Curtis will ever have. We do not care. It's not our business. Uh, you give to this church out of faithful giving in response to God. And if you choose to do that, that's fantastic. That's part of our calling as believers. If you choose not to do that, I will never know that. So just I want you just to rest, uh, be at rest, and we're not going to give an offering after this message. I'm not asking for your money. What I am asking you is, if you believe that the local church uh, is a life-giving uh, life, really life-saving because of the love of Jesus, institution or group of people, is that worth your time, energy and resource? And is that a part of your faithful? faithful giving. And it should be. It should be for me. I haven't always gotten that right. Sometimes I'm more in the seven percent, and I'll go, that's, I want to be at least 10. That needs to be my, that needs to be my floor and not my ceiling. So Liz and I sometimes just have to go, where's, where's our money going? Like, how are we eating at Chewy's 30 times in 30 days? That doesn't make sense, right? (laughs) Like, we need to maybe scale it back and give some of this money. I'll find other ways to cut, all right? Um, (laughs) So I'm just asking you, and not between, not between any of your pastors and you, but between you and the Lord, is this a part of our regular giving that we would give and support our church? And lastly, I would just say this and we're done. Um, when I read this passage, when I read um, Matthew 6, I hope that we just get a sense that God is calling us to things that aren't temporary that are not going to just build up behind us, but God is calling us to things that are eternal. And I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of eternal work. I spend a lot of time and energy on things that really just don't mean that much. And as much as uh, much as I want to think that I get this right, I just typically don't. And so I want to just say, as we're going to pray together and we're going to sing together, I'm hoping... And and I'm prayerful that in your heart, in your mind, you're just saying to God, how can I be a part of eternal work and be less focused on things that are going to just rot? Let me say lastly, uh, I hope that if you have a family, that you get to spend time and energy and resources on getting away with them, with on vacation doing things with them. I never, ever want us to get in the same room and act like what we do, we should somehow feel guilty about this or that. I do want us to open the scriptures together. And I want my life to be examined by the Lord to say, is there a bunch of junk? So this doesn't have to do with how you're spending. Uh, if you got some money in your budget that you get to spend on entertainment, man, awesome. Go see movies. I love going to movies. Go, go do great things with your family. Have a blast. Enjoy life together. But let's be a people that are constantly asking God, God, would you just continually chip away at our life? We want to have bandwidth to live generously. We want to have bandwidth with our time. We want to have bandwidth with our energy. I don't want to be exhausted at the end of the day and not give to somebody else. And I want to have some bandwidth in my budget to love and to serve people. Yeah. Those, are the, those are the things we're praying together. Um, here's what I'd love for you to do. Before you before you bow your heads, we're going to pray together. We always want this to be a house of prayer. Jesus called his house a house of prayer. So if we come in here, we sing a little bit, and we're out of here, I'm not sure we've done uh, much good. We're to be a people that are praying to God, uh, seeking him together. And so we're going to pray together. I hope that that's not just something that we do at the end of the service, that if you need prayer, we've got people who want to uh, say a prayer over you. They're not, they're not experts in Jesus. They're people who just want to follow him and want to just walk alongside you. So I, I just invite you to come and seek prayer, whether it be small, whether it be massive. I had a great friend this week just uh, diagnosed with, uh, with cancer, so it may be as big as that. Or it may just be like, you know what, honestly, um, I'm just, I'm stressed. I'm tired. Would you just pray for the, for the rest and the peace of God? So whether small or large, would you come and seek prayer? We're going to sing together. I, I, I think I'd be remiss just not to say this, though, before we pray, is that if you're with us this morning and we're opening the Scriptures and you're thinking to yourself, maybe somewhat reluctantly, but just like, I don't really understand when we're talking about Jesus what this is truly about. Like, I'm hearing the teachings of the, the Bible, but I don't really feel like I have a relationship of any kind that's uh, with with God, or I feel like I've experienced the love and the grace of God. I just want to invite you, and maybe you don't even know how to say that. You're just like, I, I need to be prayed for, because I, I want to know God, and I don't know how to know Him. And so if that's you this morning, whether you're 50 or 15, uh, you are invited to come uh, be prayed for. And so what we call this access room, it's really an access corner because we run out of room, all right? So access corner. If you want to stick around and just have somebody sit down with you and go, hey, what does what following Jesus look like? They're not going to pressure you or do something uh, crazy with you. They just want to be able to pray with you and introduce uh, what they've experienced in their life to you. So I want to just share that with you. Let's pray together and then I'm going to invite you to come for prayer as we worship. God, we praise you. I thank you for the book of James. I thank you that we've been able to spend many months in this book. And God, this is a hard passage for me to read because it gets very personal very fast. And for us to read out loud in a public setting, God, you, you, we're, we're, we're getting personal with you. And I pray that more than just maybe reading and uh, a, a quick examination, that we would just ask, God, that you would convict in a way that only you can do. So we're not offering judgment or condemnation to each other, but we are inviting the true conviction of the Spirit of God in this place. That you would examine our lives, that we would see uh, places where you're calling us to to maybe uh, step off of the ledge to live generously and instead we've we've missed it. And so let us confess that and let us just uh, really with great joy find the chance to serve and to love uh, things that are eternal, in ways that are eternal, not in ways that are gonna build up junk. So guys, we spend time in prayer. We um, we live life as worshipers. Our worship is not just the song. Our worship is our live response to you. And so would you just remind us as we sing these words, as we pray together as brothers and sisters, remind us that we're to worship you. All that we do should be in response to who you are let us do so as a church and as families and as young singles and as teenagers this morning. We just, we do so as a church uh, and we, we do so in the name of Jesus.